Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Fueling the Gilded Age, Andrew Arnold. Andrew Arnold, author of Fueling the Gilded Age, Railroads, Miners, and Disorder in Pennsylvania Coal Country. Your book focuses on Clearfield County, Pennsylvania. Why would you pick that area to concentrate on? You know, it's funny. I was looking for a topic that had to do with the coal miners. And I was looking for a topic that had to do with unions. And the reason was because uh, everything I'd read about unions, from every lawyer, every judge, every politician, it seemed, it seemed as if unions didn't make sense. And so as a historian, you want to look for a topic that just doesn't fit. And so I got interested in the coal miners because I was reading through convention reports. So convention reports are once a year a union will come together and they'll bring representatives from all over. Every coal mine had a representative. And they came together in Indianapolis. And I happened to be reading the coal miner records from, I think it was 1905. And these are practically verbatim. They're an incredible source. They have all these voices. And they're arguing about who had the right to speak, who had the right to claim the title of being a real coal miner and speaking as part of this democratic group. And it clued me in to this sense that they saw themselves as a democratic organization. And in order to be part of this, to be a citizen, you had to be a guy who had took a shovel and went downstairs, downstairs went mm-hmm down below ground and risked his life. And the most interesting voices describing that were coming from central Pennsylvania. Um, And so I started looking into central Pennsylvania and John Brophy was the leader of the miners from central Pennsylvania in 1905. And, uh, And then I started reading newspapers from the place and I came across mention of a court case where, uh, a man had been arrested, a coal operator had been arrested for throwing someone off of his property. I said, uh, man arrested for throwing a check weighman off the tipple. Right? And well, I'd never heard of such a thing. And whoever thought a coal operator, you think of the coal operators as being the powerful ones, getting arrested for throwing a coal miner who's trying to check weight, and he got arrested for that? So I went to Clearfield at one point, I got a grant to work at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and I went from there to Clearfield, and I asked them to see the original records for that court case. And the profanatory, I remember, he came in, it was uh, the opening of deer hunting season, so obviously he didn't come in until he got his buck. And he came in, and I told him what I wanted. He showed me the index, he showed me where it wasn't. And so I said, okay, and there's this huge leather-bound dockets and I just started flipping through it page after page until I came to the entry for where Grant Way had been thrown off had been, and then had filed suit, filed a, a, a 
complaint under the law. And uh, he looked at me in the prothonotory, just there was this long sigh, and he said, okay. And he took me up to the attic of the courthouse, and he just sort of pushed open the door with difficulty to the attic to the courthouse. We had to go through the library and turned on the light, and there's this cavernous library that's just awash with old legal papers and, you know, rot, held together with rotting red tape. And there's pigeon excrement everywhere. And he said, well, if it's here, if it exists, if the original papers exist, they're in here. And I ended up spending months in that attic going through, and I finally found the original records. And then it was just a matter of finding more and more I found a, 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 one of the rarest of things, which was a complete transcript of an 1872 trial. There was a riot led by a woman named Sarah McGowan. And it wasn't in a drawer, it was under a drawer. It had fallen through. And it was, it was uh, so anyway, I, I, that's how I found myself to Clearfield. I'm going to ask you about that because there's so many directions we could take. Sure. First of all, how much great history is locked up in attics like that that no one will have the time or the grant to find? <laughs> Oh, it's all over. And that's one of the fun parts of writing this book, was finding all the sources that no one had looked at before. So one of them was that one with um, Sarah McGowan. She just comes alive on that page. Uh, and it was about 60 pages of a transcript. There's a murder case, which no one has ever looked at, where, again, there's a verbatim transcript up in that attic. But there was also one that was misfiled at the National Archives. It was a 1906 investigation into freight rates, which sounds pretty dry. And I, I finally found it because it was in faint pencil in the corner of uh, another document. They get, the docket was there. It was their first special investigation. So they didn't have, they didn't have a system for filing special investigations yet. So they just, they just put it in their old investigations. And I kept on asking for more materials, and finally the archivist got frustrated, and he said, well, come with me. And he took me you know, to the back rooms where they keep everything at the National Archives, and he just said, this is what you're asking for. And he showed me shelf upon shelf just crammed with documents that hadn't been looked at in 100 years. And uh, the same thing with the trial of John Siney. That was, again, misfiled at the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission, and it was a 500-page verbatim transcript of that trial. And once you just, it's once you start poking around, uh, it's amazing what you can find. Um, I have a student right now who's going through the Fallbrook records uh, at Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission. It is the last great set of records, of a uh, unplumbed set of railroad records. Most railroad records have been gone through by lawyers, or in the case of the Pennsylvania Railroad, uh, a lot of the records were burned. And one of the reasons why historians love writing about railroads, I think, is because some of the records, the records are so much, are so gone that they, they end up being really easy to write about, right? Uh, but the Fallbrook records, the only people who've ever gone through them are, well, that would be me. What, what is Fallbrook? Is that a railroad? Yeah, the Fallbrook, that's the other thing, is nobody has ever heard of the Fallbrook Railroad. Uh, it was part of the, of the New York Central eventually. But originally, it was built as part of the Beach Creek. No, it was originally built in order to get coal from Tioga County up to New York. And then it becomes part of, uh, they built the Beach Creek Railroad to go into there. 
um, to bring coal to the East Coast. And, and then it becomes part of the South Penn imbroglio, which a lot of people know about from the 1880s. But no one's ever looked at those records, and they have never thrown away anything. So it, when you look at those records, things become much, much more messy. I mean, there's, there's things like, uh, people like to argue about the railroad, people like to talk about the railroads as if they were a clean system, that they'd, they, they were systematic in everything that they did. But to read the original records, you start realizing how much they're improvising, how much they're, they're making up, how much they're fudging in order to make the trains run even when they don't fit the neat system that's coming from headquarters. Well, you write about the, the railroads as kind of being uh, uh, rail, railroads versus the mine owners mm -hmm. and the mine owners versus the miners and the railroads versus other railroads. Can you talk about that a little bit with the relationship, relationship between the railroads and the mine owners? Yeah, that was really complicated. I thought when I went into this, as I said, I wanted to write about the union and I wanted to write about the coal miners. And in part it was because unions typically don't fit in with our economic and political system. They're just outside of it. So I wanted to know why they were so persistent. But the other thing is I wanted to know how they'd invented themselves. How did they go from just being a regular set of just practices to an institution? And in order to write that, it turned out I had to write about how the railroads had invented a system that brought together coal mining and railroads and how the railroads themselves had, in, had invented a large-scale system because it didn't arrive ready-made. And it turned out that sometimes the railroads, the coal operators partnered with the railroads, and sometimes the coal operators partnered with their coal miners against the railroads. And so there was a shifting, you know, it was a tripartite system where alliances shifted because over time the railroads wanted to be the only ones making money out of the coal industry. And they actually, and it took me forever to figure this out from the records, they created a sliding scale. So what they said to the coal miners, coal operators was, let's say you can have, we'll give you, let you have a dollar per ton at the mine. So the coal comes up out of ground, you weigh it, you can have a dollar for every ton that comes out of the ground. And then if it costs two dollars, uh, then, pardon me, then if you're able to sell it for $3, then the price of transportation, wherever it goes to, will be $2. So every contract, so if you've got a contract with the, uh, you know, the, New York Light, um, the New York Light Company, well then, or Electric and Light Company, then, um, and they were willing to pay you $3 a ton, great. The operator gets a dollar, we charge $2 for shipping. Well, if they're only willing to pay you $2.50 a ton, well then, it's still a dollar at the mine, and we'll charge you a dollar fifty for shipping. If, however, the price of coal goes up to four dollars, you still get a dollar at the mine, and we'll get three. And what the coal, what the the railroad managers would do is they would actually say to the coal operators, "This is, this was the missing connection that brought together the railroad operators, the, probably the, the railroad managers, the operators, and the miners." Is the railroad managers would say, "Look, we can't give you a dollar a ton anymore." 95 cents. So we're ordering, we the railroad managers are going to order all the miners, all the, all the mine operators on our lines must lower costs by 5 cents per ton. And we want you to take that out of the miners' wages. 
So now you have the miners, you realize they're not just striking against the coal operator, they're striking against the railroad. And the railroad is deciding how much each coal miner should get paid. And when I found that, you know, that appears nowhere in the literature. It's a, it's a fact of history that has disappeared. And yet even with that system, apparently, it sounds like the rigged system, you have railroads going bankrupt. I mean, you mm -hmm. talk about the Norfolk and Western going bankrupt oh, yeah. and, the, and Franklin Gowan uh, bankrupting the Reading Railroad and committing uh -huh. suicide. How, how, how did they end up <laughs> going bankrupt with that system? Well, Franklin Gowan's a special case, and he's somebody else who deserves another biography. The last biography of the ruler of the Reading was in 19, I think, 1945. Mm -hmm. So he badly needs another biography. An incredibly ambitious guy who was so much respected as a visionary. And his idea, the reason he drove the Reading to bankruptcy in the anthracite region was because he went to his investors and he said, look, nobody knows how to make money out of the railroad industry. He said, I do. Here's my vision. We're not just going to transport the coal. We're going to own the coal and the, and the, uh, the lands as well. So we're going to own the stuff that we're shipping. But in order to do that, he went into incredible debt because there's a huge amount of land to buy. Um, so that's how he drove them out of business. He also was competing with other railroads. And the other part of your answer, uh, the answer to your question is, railroads up until about 1873 competed against no one. They didn't see it as competition. They were, everyone knows the story, I think, of how Amazon has structured itself. Amazon.com, their structure is, we want market share over everything. And we'll lose money forever until there's only one store left, us. Well, in the dot-com era, there was so much money being invested in dot-coms. And in, before 1873, there was so much money being invested in the railroads, and nobody cared when profit would come. No one understood how, pro how you would profit from this new technology. It was just too exciting. After 1873, after the panic of 1873, which is really caused by uh, European crisis and British investors saying, we're not going to invest anymore until we know where the money's coming from, where the profit's coming from, railroads start to compete against each other. And the main trunk lines, the Pennsylvania Railroad, the Baltimore and Ohio, and the New York and Central, begin to try and drive each other out of business. And the Norfolk and Western was a coal-carrying railroad, as it was the Chesapeake and Ohio. There's a series of deals that are made where the Pennsylvania Railroad and the Baltimore and Ohio and the New York Central agree, we won't fight anymore. This will be the, we'll, we'll divide up the trade for coal. And then they would say to the smaller roads, such as the Beach Creek in northern Pennsylvania, and the Chesapeake and Ohio, and Norfolk and Western, the Norfolk and Western in West Virginia, they would say to them, you can have 500,000 tons, 500,000 tons per year. And if you go over that, we will crush you. Uh, and what would happen is, they would keep on, you know, they would keep on breaking their truces. And they would break their truces this way. They would let their coal operators know along the route, and they would let their freight agents know along the route, that they would allow freight rates to drop as low as they needed to. Secret freight rates could drop as low as they needed to, to take the trade away from somebody else. And again, that sliding scale let them do that. 
And there's all these, rec there's all these letters in the Fallbrook Railroad uh, collection where they say, okay, uh, I can take away this trade from the Baltimore and Ohio if you'll let me get this freight rate. We'll get a dollar you know, at the mine, and then you let me have a little bit, you know, cut my freight rate, and then we'll undercut these guys. Well, the railroads had you know, such resources. They were able to do this over and over and over again, and eventually they were able to drive these other, you know, other railroads out of business. And then the crisis of 1893, J.P. Morgan begins to organize uh, consolidation of all the railroads. Were there any places where if you were a coal miner, you had a choice between dealing with this railroad or that one? Very few. Very few. There was a, they were called independent coal operators. There was a guy named uh, Wigdon, I think it's W.H. Wigdon in central Pennsylvania who lucked out. He had, uh, he could ship either on the Pennsylvania Railroad or on the Beach Creek. And he ends up being very influential um, for a time until the Beach Creek and the Pennsylvania Railroad made a deal. And then, uh, then he wasn't. But I, I generally, you're on one or the other. I want to ask you about this uh, woman, Sarah McGowan, who you sure. wrote about. Because you talk about um, there was a, uh, a, a strike at one of the mines in 1872, and uh, some uh, the regional manager tried to get uh, some strike breakers to work on it, and the result was a running battle and gunplay. The rioters, union leaders claimed were Molly Maguire's, first of all, and uh, and. It wasn't the mythical Molly McGuire's who were at the center of all this. It was a woman named Sarah McGowan, wife of miner Henry McGowan. She led the harassment of strike breakers and ultimately degenerated into a riot. How did you find out about her? Uh, by accident. Um, I was up in the attic of the Clearfield County Courthouse, and I had a small crowbar with me because <laughs> there were drawers that were stuck, and I used the, the crowbar to unstick them. And under one of the drawers was a transcript of a trial uh, that really didn't make the papers. And I eventually found the original records for the arrests. The coal miners who were involved were arrested for riot and conspiracy. And the women who were arrested were also arrested for conspiracy, but then they crossed out where it said conspiracy. In part because to be arrested for conspiracy, I think, meant that you had... Um, you'd intimidated somebody. And they didn't want to <laughs> say that they'd been intimidated by uh, these women. Um, excuse me. But I found these records. And when you have that kind of detail in a story, it, it gives you a sense of how they saw themselves. And in this case, the union leaders who had by to up to that time run a very peaceful strike and a peaceful strike where they got along with the coal operators. And as I mentioned in there, after the strike, like Sarah McGowan's husband, Henry, goes back to work at the same place afterwards. They had every intention of going back to work. They blame it on the Molly Maguires. And I always say that that's, uh, the Molly Maguires were an excuse. It was like bl blaming it on, you know, it was, you know, blaming it on gang members or something. Now this is central Pennsylvania, or yeah. far west of the anthracite region right. where you usually hear the Molly Maguires. Yeah. Was there a real thing there in, that, in Clearfield County, that part of the state? The Molly Maguires are such a mystery. And the only sources, good sources, we have on the Molly Maguires are the sources that, um, that, that's, that um, uh, Franklin Gowan developed. And we know that the first, his first attempt, you know, the first thing that happened when he sent out a Pinkerton detective to go undercover and find evidence about the Molly Maguires is he came back and he said, 
there's no evidence. So McGowan, part of me, Franklin Gowan being Franklin Gowan said, clearly I have the wrong detective. I need a detective who will tell me what I want to hear. And, and his new detective, McParlin, went out and they just basically took any crime that had occurred in and around anthracite and they said, obviously, this is the Molly Maguires. So we don't have any good evidence about the Molly Maguires even in anthracite, I don't think. But uh, to the extent that the Molly Maguires existed in reality as a, as a technique, as a, as a myth, as a story that the coal miners themselves were aware of, uh, there's no reason why it shouldn't have existed in central Pennsylvania as well. There's Irish coal miners, and they're familiar with the legend of the Molly Maguires. They could draw a coffin as well as anyone. Um, while we're on the subject of women and uh -huh. union organizing, you write about Mother Jones mm -hmm. quite a bit, and, and you say there's one, uh, one incident where Mother Jones told a group of women to go home and put on their kitchen clothes. She told them to bring their tools, the deceptively feminine weapons of a mop handle, tin pan, bucket, and wooden spoon. <laughs> the women kept watch through the cold days and nights. They carried mops and frigid pails of water on one arm and babies on the other. Mm -hmm. In the strike at the Erie Company's Tioga Mines, as at future coal field strikes, the women were an effective force. They scared mules, drove away scab mule drivers, and stood watch around the clock to physically block the introduction of new men. You don't usually hear about women being a, a, a driving force in, in strikes. Uh, there's a persistent undercurrent of that story, and it's because you know, the women were an integral part of, of the industry. You could, it was really hard to be a coal miner if you didn't have, either if, if you weren't in a boarding house or married. It's really a family industry and you needed, you needed boys at home who were going to come up and earn half pay and then full pay and then develop some savings before you got hurt. You needed, you needed people at home to take care of you and you needed people at home to help to do the really heavy cleaning. So women, as you see with the story with Sarah McGowan um, and you see with the story of Mother Jones, they they saw themselves as part of this fight. What Mother Jones was brilliant at, and the thing that really makes her stand out in history, I think, is she was the first one that said, women step forward separately. Part of the reason is because by this time, for men, for them to actually do anything, to picket, to block uh, blacklegs or you know, strike breakers or scabs, was to put themselves at risk of arrest not just for you know, assault or battery, but for the crime of being part of a union. It was called criminal conspiracy but, and intimidation. But what Mother Jones realized is it was far harder to arrest women for that. And so when she says to the women, go get your kitchen clothes, she's saying, let's bring out the most, almost a caricature of a nonviolent person. However, if you're a coal miner at four in the morning in January, going to work in a mine all day long, and you find yourself soaked with water from an ice-cold bucket, you're not going to work that day. Um, and if one of these women attacks you with a mop handle, it's going to feel an awful lot like a club. So <laughs> I think uh, that was, you know, that's in her autobiography, Mother Jones spends an awful lot of time on that strike in this really obscure area of Pennsylvania in Tioga County. And I think it's because that's where she finally had that insight that the law, American law, that does, that does so much to limit what union activists can do 
there's so much to limit what it really is what limiting what men can do. And it opened a, a, an odd space for women. And then later on, when she leads the Children's March, for children. You mentioned uh, uh, people could get in trouble for just being in unions. And you, you say here, this is 1875, mm -hmm. bit by bit. And then in spectacular, a spectacular court case, Clearfield County courts ruled unionism itself to be a criminal conspiracy and restraint of trade and sentenced union members according to their level of leadership. The more prominent the leader, the more severe the sentence. So by just by virtue of its existence, unions were illegal? Yeah, it's part of the common law. Um, and it's, it's funny, it goes back to oh, about 1300. So the king would, uh, back, in, uh, back in England, the, the king might give a license to a guild to have a monopoly on a certain trade. And eventually, it becomes illegal to operate outside of that system. It becomes illegal to operate in restraint of trade. So you can't organize on your own to say control the, the watchmaking trade or the goldsmithing trade or whatever trade it is. And so going all the way back to 1300, it's a crime in the common law. And American judges begin applying it. Oh, the first case is the Cordwainer's uh, case in Philadelphia in, I think, 1802. And what they argue is that by organizing a union, the cordwainers or shoemakers are operating in restraint of trade. And that's the argument as it comes through common law. What they say is, oh, what's the line? Um, you, you're not allowed to stop anybody using unlawful means, and you're not allowed to, oh, I, I forget the exact, the exact phrase that uh, comes from a court case in 1848. Uh, but on the national level, um, it, was, it was legal to be part of a union. What you were not allowed to do was really act as part of a union. And with this, this becomes most evident in freedom of contract cases. So what would happen is uh, a union would vote very carefully to go out on strike. And this, they took such care in their decisions, especially in this era. They would be a delegate uh, votes, they would argue about it. And then in the case of that case in 1875, as far as I can tell, every coal miner participated in that vote. And they voted overwhelmingly to go out on strike. The question is, since they've gone on, they've voted to go out on strike, what happens to the guy who says, well, I didn't vote for that. I want to go to work anyway. Well, the coal miners would say, well, we have this union. We coal miners are a class. We're a group of people. And we coal miners have voted to go out on strike. Therefore, John, Bill, Frank, you shouldn't go back to work. But what happens if they come from outside the area? It becomes almost impossible to enforce that in, by any legal means. And that's where people like Sarah McGowan and Mother Jones come in. And also, what they're really arguing is, look, we're from Clearfield. These are our jobs. We work in these coal mines. And every coal miner, by the way, believed that uh, had, a, had a, a place, a workshop underground that he'd built, that he'd propped, that he left his tools in. It's kind of like you saying uh, you have an office. Or my students would say they have a, a desk. Or a, it's, it's really not your office, right? But you have certain rights to it. Like nobody's supposed to go into your office. They're not supposed to rearrange it or take things from it. 
So what, down underground, they would respect down. each person's yeah. workspace? And the, the, the fascinating thing is that the coal operators respected it as well because it was a tremendous amount of work for a coal operator to have self-managing workers. And, and, the, the, and the miners did manage themselves. They, uh, they maintained quality for each other. They maintained safety. They made sure that they were trained. So in this era before human resources and formal training, the union wasn't just there to negotiate wages. The union was there to make sure things were done properly, to train people. And that was one of the most fascinating things that came out of this book for me, was realizing that the union was not just there to negotiate how much people got paid. And the coal operators themselves recognized that they needed the union in order to run their businesses. Well, you used the word uh, a little while ago, a check weighman. Yeah. That w what was that, and, and why was it controversial? Ah, uh, that, you know, I had not heard of check weighman until I started this research, and then you start to see it everywhere. Here's what's going on. If you're a coal miner, the way, the way coal mining worked back then was you had a little brass check. Um, it was called the check, and it was a brass ring People use them today if you go into a camp uh, swimming pool to make sure that every kid's accounted for when he comes out, right? Same thing. You had your check, you took it off the board, you had a bunch of them with your number on it. All right, so you put the check on a hook to show that you were going down underground. Then when you were in your room, you and your buddy, the origin of the term buddy comes from an English term for two coal miners who work together. And you would alternate. You'd load up, you'd, um, you know, you'd, you'd lie under the, the coal, You'd hack away on your side until you'd undermined it, undermined it. Then you'd wedge it down. You'd load up the car with coal, and then you'd put your check on it. And then you'd wait for a teenage kid to come by with a mule, and he'd haul it off to the surface. And you'd go back to work. You'd go back to their hacking underground, lying entirely under, like a, you have to hack six feet in in order to weaken the coal and hope it didn't fall on you. Right? That's why it's so dangerous. Well, your coal's being hauled off to the surface by this teenager. And then when it gets to the surface, the waymaster, the company waymaster, weighs it. And there's, there's songs about this, you know, uh, about, about waymasters. Well, you're miles away. You're underground, literally, in the dark. And you come back uh, at the end of the day, and you look at what credit you got. And the company waymaster would say, well, you sent up a two-ton car, but really there was a lot of slate in it, and it wasn't really up to the top. And, a lot of the coal had fallen off, so I'm only going to give you credit for a ton and a half. Well, you would have to trust that waymaster an awful lot to be able to say, okay. So what coal miners started doing was they would elect their smartest, the smartest person in the group, someone who could read and write and argue, and they would elect them to stand at the, at the scales and uh, make, and just check what the waymaster did. And the waymaster would say, well, I see a lot of slate in there. Uh, it's not loaded to the top. It should be a one and a half tons. And the check wayman would, might say, yeah, but I'm looking at the scale and it says, two, you know, it says two tons. And then they would argue about it and created some contention. But there were actually laws passed in Pennsylvania saying that the coal miners had a right to do that. Who paid the check wayman? Ah, the miners paid them. And this is actually the, the beginning of formal unionism in America, I think, because the law said that the operators could deduct uh, a charge from every miner's paycheck per ton 
to pay for that uh, check, to pay for a check weighman association. And that money would go automatically to a check weighman association fund, to the check weighman fund. Uh, and it began, that was an idea that began in Ohio. It originally was challenged as a, you know, the, the first uh, Allegheny County judge who heard of this, um, uh, McKendrick, Judge McKendrick, said it's, a, it's an absurdity, he said. He said, as soon as this happens, and let's say the, the coal operator says, well, I don't want to uh, check Wayman, I'm shutting the mine. Well, wait a minute. That means that all the people who elected that check Wayman no, no longer exist. So as soon as he shuts the mine, you no longer have the authority to be there. And that original court case I found that brought me to um, Pennsylvania, brought me to Clearfield, Pennsylvania, was a case in 1889 where the check Wayman won. And not only did the check Wayman win, but the coal operators agreed to pay his court costs. And the reason was because in 1886, in an effort to bring order to their regional industry and make sure they were all competing on fair ground, because let's face it, if, uh, if your company, Waymaster, can cheat his, you know, then you're mining coal cheaper than anybody else and gives you an advantage. All the coal operators in 1886 agreed to abide by the law. And so the local precedent, local court cases, gave coal miners the authority to have it to elect a check weighman and have him paid and have a check weigh fund that was paid for by automatic deductions. So like union dues. Exactly like union dues. But this had never happened before. It used to be that the way you collected union dues is a guy would stand at the mine and he would say, you know, do you have enough money, Bill? And Bill would say, you know, not this week. <laughs> um, so, and what happened was uh, as soon as you got a check weighman, as soon as things seemed fair, people would stop paying for the union. And they would only pay for a union. Unions in the 1870s really only arose when there was a strike. A union was a temporary organization that came together for a strike. They would have pit committees. And every mine had a pit committee. It was a part of how the, the coal industry ran. You had to have a pit committee because otherwise, how would you, as a coal operator, negotiate things like cleaning up coal spills, digging tunnels, laying track? It was just a way of resolving, resolving problems. Did the, the unions have a strike fund back then? Typically what they would do is when they went on strike, they would send people out to adjoining coal fields and they would collect funds. And they would get credit from local businessmen. Starting in the 1880s, though, with the Checkway Fund, the answer is yes. And they had unprecedented amounts of money that they could suddenly spend to enforce strikes. And this is something that coal operators welcomed because it enforced a level playing field. So what would happen is you'd have one coal operator who would try and throw his check weighman off the tipple and therefore be able to mine coal more cheaply than anybody else because he could cheat his coal miners. Well, that hurt all the rest of the operators. So they wanted the check weighman to then, uh, the check weighman fund, to foment a strike at that individual coal mine that was breaking the rules. We've been talking about Clearfield County, Pennsylvania, but for uh -huh. people who are not familiar with it, where is it and how big is it and what's there now? It is just west of uh, Center County, which is uh, sort of west and northish of Center County uh, where, where um, Penn State is. 
So it's so far to the west that people in the east sort of dismiss it as being too far west. And it's so kind of rural and to the central Pennsylvania, the people of western Pennsylvania sort of call it central Pennsylvania. It's part of the great rural sort of heart of Pennsylvania. Bituminous coal? Bituminous coal, or they called it semi-bituminous. They wanted to claim that it was better than western coal. And in a sense it was. It was a purer coal. It was harder. It wasn't quite anthracite. But it didn't have the chemical properties of western Pennsylvania coal that made it so good for coking, for making iron and steel. And I guess this is something else that I didn't know until I researched this book, and that is that the coal industry is, was a strikingly regional industry. And when people ordered coal from New York City or Philadelphia or wherever they were ordering it from, they wouldn't just order from, from a region or a mine or a producer. They might say, we want the coal from your number seven tunnel. That really suits our great system. And it was very specific. So if you ordered, you know, 50 tons of, num of coal from number the number seven tunnel, it came on a car. And if that car fell off the tracks or got lost or got caught in a, a cold, in a, in, a, in a blockade or it snowed, you just didn't get your coal. There, there wasn't a commodity market in bituminous coal in a way that there was in grain or you know, all of their commodities. So it became a, a fascinating industry because every individual contract for coal was, was negotiated separately. You say in your book that um, good permanent coal miners were tough to come by in Clearfield County. Yeah. Um, yes, and especially in that era, especially that was in the 1870s. Um, coal miners, being a coal miner is something that you could get trained to do if you didn't mind doing a bad job. Uh, and especially when you get into the 1880s, 1890s, they're using a lot more powder to blow coal off the solid instead of having to undermine it. And they're getting a lot better at using smaller grades of coal. But in the 1870s, there was a premium paid for large chunks of coal. It's also a very rural industry. It's a very dangerous industry. Uh, if you look at the cover of the book, what I love about this is it shows you just how tiny that hole in the ground was. Um, that's one of, that's, uh, I think when people imagine a coal mine, they imagine the tourist coal mines, and they imagine them as, as tall as a man could stand. But a lot of times in Clearfield, the, the mine was low, the, the coal was low coal. It was under three feet thick. So you were crouched all day long. You were crawling all day long. Did, did people move to Clearfield to get jobs as miners, or was it just local? Oh, people moved there, um, and there's people, and you look at the census records, you can see that people moved there as miners. Was, it, was there an ethnic mix? Yeah, especially as time goes on, and what happens is as coal operators in the 1880s start to bring in, and late 1870s, they start to bring in strike breakers. They deliberately bring them from other other regions and of, of different ethnicities. So the, in, at one point they brought in um, Swedes because they thought they wouldn't talk with the coal miners. At one point they bring in Italians. The, the Italian consul brings in in 1875 a carload of Italians and uh, who hadn't ever mined before. As a matter of fact, the, the superintendent was, was sort of preparing the tools for them. 
and they end up, they end up leaving. They, uh, the coal miners paid for their passage back to Philadelphia. Uh, actually, what they did was they paid for their passage back to, um, uh, back to uh, about halfway. <laughs> so they didn't get them back to Philadelphia. They got deposited about halfway back to Philadelphia, which is kind of a, a cruel joke. Is there coal mining going on in Clearfield County now? There is. There is. Um, I was there oh a couple of years ago, and there was still they're still mining the low coal. Not a lot of mining going on there. Part of what happened is in 1900, when the railroads consolidated, as a matter of railroad policy, they decided to subsidize the West Virginia coal mines. The reason why West Virginia became such a dominant coal mining region in America is because the railroads decided that it, they would be easier to control and they wouldn't and it would be easier for them to pull out of central Pennsylvania, Maryland, places like that and move um, and move to West Virginia and there they could control the miners they could bring in um, African American miners who had fewer legal rights uh, and they basically could control the state uh, and so for that reason they, they lower freight rates in order to make West Virginia coal the cheapest in the country. They were not able to control the state in Pennsylvania? No. Um, Pennsylvania Railroad had a great deal of power in the Pennsylvania state legislature. As a matter of fact, they were, they were legendary for their corruption. However, they weren't as able to control the coal miners. And that was one of the things that was, it was a really interesting to find out in writing the book was that often you have the Pennsylvania Railroad saying, look, we're the Pennsylvania Railroad, and we're going to make a deal. And the deal is we're going to pay this much for coal, we're going to pay this much to the miners, this is the price that it's going to be, and that's it. And the coal miners would you know, come from the, each individual hamlet. They'd come together. They'd gather at the agitation ground outside of, outside of Clearfield. They would communicate with all their different groups, and they would say, you know something? We're not willing to work for that. And so what would happen is, and this is, this is another reason why Central by why West Virginia uh, coal started coming onto market earlier, is when the Pennsylvania Railroad and the Baltimore and Ohio made their big deals, uh, the coal miners would go off on strike, and all of a sudden the only place you could get coal was West Virginia. So you have this incredible story of railroads who are the most powerful corporations in America with more employees than the United States government, the wholly owned Pennsylvania state legislature in their pocket, the best lawyers, the most money, and they're being stopped by these guys with shovels saying, that's not fair. You, you mentioned that in the beginning, unions would just come together at a time of a strike. They mm -hmm. weren't permanent institutions. When did you start seeing unions that take, start to take the form that we see them today? Oh, uh, the form that they take today is really traceable to 1937, the Wagner Act. That's what makes unions so very legalistic today. Um, I found one case earlier in the 1880, uh, 1883, which will illustrate what I'm talking about when I mean legalistic. In 1883, the local coal, in, local coal union uh, made a deal with their operator. They said, we'll we'll agree to work for, I forget what it is, per ton. And great. And the coal operator said, fine. We have a contract. We'll pay you this much per ton. But all the old agreements we had, we're going to throw them out. 
We only have a written contract for the price per ton. That's it. We're going to charge you more for oil. We're going to charge you more for gunpowder. The prices at the company store are going to go up. We're not going to pay you for dead work anymore. We're not going to pay you for laying track anymore. We're going to charge you for the props you use to prop things up. And there was a clause in the contract that said either party, party could strike or, or could, uh, could renegotiate it with two weeks' notice. So the coal miner said, okay, we're going to renegotiate this. Well, the next contract was about 50 pages long because they realized, wait a minute, all of our old traditional agreements, if they're going to go out the window, then we're going to have to put them in the contract. Well, today, if you're a union member, and I'm a union member, if you work for a union contract, one of the things that people make fun of is how long the contracts are. And the reason is because the traditions that used to, uh, used to govern how people ran a mine, ran a factory, ran a university, went out the window. So that starts in 1937. As far as creating unions that are bureaucracies, that outlive a strike, there's a couple different answers to that. One is in the Knights of Labor. So remember you said, uh, you read that passage from 1875 where unions are deemed illegal in central Pennsylvania. So what the coal miners did, right, so in 1875 unions are deemed illegal. The Baltimore and Ohio and the Pennsylvania Railroad uh, make a secret agreement to coordinate freight rates and to coordinate production. On the very same day that that decision's handed down, that secret agreement goes into effect. Okay, so what do the coal miners do? They joined the Knights of Labor. And all that meant was they created a secret union. And that secret union was a group of leaders who met in secret, uh, sort of created strategy in secret. But it, again, it's still at the same time, the mass union only emerged during times of crisis. In 1880 and 1882, it happened again. In 1878, those same leaders tried to form a political party, part of the Greenback Party, but that fell apart. But as far as being a, a permanent organization, really it was coincident with the start of the Czech Weyman Associations. Because for the first time, the Czech Weyman Associations had access to a regular stream of cash, a regular income. So they could hire miners agents who, again, were the smartest miners. And it was their job to avoid trouble. So the coal operators loved having the miners agents. They would call them and say, look, there's a conflict here. The miners want to strike. And the job of the miners agent is to smooth it over. But it also meant they could have an office, have a secretary, hire lawyers. In, uh, as in the case of the 1889 Czech Weyman strike, they, the, the, the union brought in lawyers. And then in 1890, the um, the unions in, central, in, in the Midwest, which had been, they had been creating their own um, coal miners unions, came together and formed the United Mine Workers of America. And they, they sort of found their feet over the next decade. It was only in 1897 that they created a national union. Did that supplant the Knights of Labor? It, you know, they partnered with the Knights of Labor. It's one of the worst union names of all time. It was when they, when they merged, they decided that they would call the union the United Mine Workers of America and the Knights of Labor District Trade Association 135. And so it's, it's you know, there's a, a logo that goes the entire, um, the, the, the title is that long. You have a mention in here where you say that um, 
through uh, 1897, 1898, Central Pennsylvania miners were well aware of their low status in the, in the UMWA. Why? Why? Ah, because in 1897, again, we tend to think of the coal industry as a national industry, so that any coal mined anywhere can be shipped anywhere. And it wasn't true. Coal that was shipped in uh, west of Clearfield in Jefferson County, for example, or Somerset County, it went almost entirely west until about 1900. It went west. So that means that the strike in 1897, there was a huge strike in the Midwest where the coal operators agreed to recognize the union and to sign contracts with the union. Well, that meant that they did on a large scale what the central Pennsylvania miners had done on a small scale in 1886. So the United Mine Workers of America really becomes a mass union in 1897. But by that time, um, by that time, the West Virginia coal mines are starting to come online. Somerset County is starting to come online. And Clearfield, Pennsylvania, uh, is starting to become a marginal coal region. And their organization is no longer there. People are breaking their Czech Weyman Association contracts. And they're aware of their lowly status because while the Midwest has just won this massive strike, that strike did not extend to central Pennsylvania. Their organization is in, in tatters at this time. They really, they're really falling, falling on hard times. You said you were a member of a union? I'm a member of the of APSCUF, which is the Pennsylvania Faculty Union. Where do you teach? I teach at Kutztown University of Pennsylvania. What do you teach? I teach history. I teach the history of the Constitution. I teach the history of coal and railroads, and I teach the history of the U.S. And I'm developing a course now in the history of fuel, sort of a, more of a global history. Anything else they let me teach? And now I'm uh, I'm the chair of the department right now. What number book is this for you? Uh, I like to call it uh, my second book, but it's really, I wrote a book on uh, a guidebook to the, uh, pocket-sized guidebook to the Constitution, and I wrote it for my students so that they would have a cheat sheet in constitutional history and we could do more interesting things. But this is my first, my first real book. Um, and it was, it was originally a dissertation many years ago, and I worked on it with NYU Press and uh, it's, it is exciting to see it with, between hard covers. I really want to see it between soft covers. That would be the next <laughs> step because then uh, it would be cheaper, more people could buy it. Um, how long did it take you to write it? It's, it's hard to say. It took me, the dissertation was finished in 2002, and this just came out in spring of 2014. And... Uh, I think I was getting teased about the book last time I was amongst a bunch of historians because it has the longest acknowledgments that anyone's ever seen. And the reason is because I've gone through so many lives since starting it. It became an acknowledgments essay. And it ended up being a story about really the theme of the book. The theme of the book is if you want to understand history, don't look for the way things make sense. Look for the way things continue to not make sense. Look for a disorderly life. Look for the things that don't fit. And I, I live a life that is so wonderfully complicated. And every time I think I've got a handle on it, you know, another kid will come along or another job will come along or, you know, uh, new responsibilities, um, new exciting things happening. And, I, you know, when historians just want to look at how, for how things work 
in, the, in best practice and work, uh, how things are tidy, I think they're looking in the wrong place. I don't think any of us lives a life that's just one steady path. I want to ask you about a couple other people who have popped up in your book. Okay. Uh, Zingo Parks? Isn't that a great name? Well, where, where do, aren't too many Zingos out there. You know, that's the best thing about his name is you can just pop in Zingo to a search engine and <laughs> any Zingos, you know, will come up. It was uh, a nickname, I think. Uh, I think his name was probably Ralph, but he's always referred to as Zingo, and he was a wonderful, tragic character. He started off as a, his dad was a physician in the Union Army, and he was a drummer boy in the Union Army. And he becomes a coal miner. He leads a strike in Elizabeth, Pennsylvania, and he gets blacklisted. And because he's in the blacklist, the Miners National Union, which was a, a, one of many attempts at a national union, end up um, employing him. They didn't have a reason for a national union. They didn't have any national bonds. They didn't have a national administration. But they called themselves a national union. He becomes the organizer in Clearfield. He's this short, red-headed firebrand and a great organizer. And then, eventually, the coal miners decide that they can't trust him. And he starts leaving home. I guess a drinking problem. And he leaves home. Um, and, and then he just never comes, he eventually just never comes back, a tragic figure. Somebody else pops up a couple times in your book, R.A. Kinslow and, and the Pennsylvania Grit newspaper. Oh, I'm so glad you noticed that. The Pennsylvania Grit, that's another dissertation I want someone else to write, another book, a great book. The Grit is, I, I don't, when you were a kid and you were reading comic books, do you remember The Grit? Yes, I do. Okay. So The Grit is, advertises itself as a small-town newspaper. It's based out of Kansas. Well, originally, it was based out of Williamsport. And it was based out of Williamsport because they had a brilliant idea. They said, instead of having a town newspaper, why don't we have a newspaper that's distributed everywhere the railroad goes? And it can go to towns too small to support their own newspaper. Well, what a brilliant idea. And it covers all the small towns, and they recruit reporters in every town. So if you want a picture of small town life, there's no better source. This is the 1880s, and every town has got someone who's writing in things, and it'll be things like, uh, you know, William Smith had a, a visitor the other day. The, you know, Dolores' tomatoes are looking particularly fine. It is the most local of local papers. But because it covered the mining district, they end up hiring this guy, R.A. Kinslow, who'd owned newspapers elsewhere, to be their reporter, their mining reporter. And he becomes quite an expert. He becomes a secretary of the Knights of Labor. He ends up doing investigations down in West Virginia to see what's going on down there in 1895 and writing it all up. An incredible source that I just have never seen cited anywhere else. So, yeah, that was really something. Is Grit still published? Yeah, it's, it's published out of... Kansas, I believe. Where did you find the articles that you uh, used for this book? I mean, is there a grit archive somewhere? They're on microfilm. A lot of the sources that I found were on microfilm, and there was an effort to microfilm small newspapers, small town newspapers, wherever they could be found, um, out of the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission some years ago. And uh, yeah, it's all kind of Phillipsburg, is, uh, pardon me, the Phillipsburg Journal is also in there, the Raftsman's Journal. People think of Clearfield now as a coal center, but before that, it was a center for, um, for a source of wood in Williamsport. You also uh, have a character in here, Rembrandt Peel. 
Oh, now, there yeah. was a Rembrandt Peel who painted portraits of George Washington. Was he a relative? It, it was him. Uh, yeah, he was a he was a painter and a, a coal operator. Oh, and, uh, and a Pennsylvania state senator. Yeah, yeah. So these were not obscure people. Um, William Wallace, who was also a, a major character in the book, was a state senator and a U.S. senator, and he thought he was going to be governor at some point. Um, but what's funny is that he and Rembrandt Peel, they buy up 33,000 acres of central Pennsylvania land, and they engage in a series of deals that involve uh, William H. Vanderbilt and the Carnegies and Gowan and Mark Twain. Uh, and one of Mark Twain's characters, Charles Langdon, is, a, is a central to the book. Charles Langdon is from, uh, Charles Langdon is the brother of Mark Twain's wife. Mark Twain met Charles Langdon on a, uh, he writes about him in Innocence Abroad. Uh, and matter of fact, he once said to him, he had a long conversation with him and he writes in his journal, he says, the subject of coal is very thrilling. I listened to it for about an hour or until the blood froze in my vein. <laughs> Charles Langdon could, could go on. <laughs> um, you said this is your first real book. Do you yeah. have another book in mind? Yeah, there's two other books I'm working on right now. I'm writing a book on the writing and ratification of the Constitution. And I'm writing that really for my students because I want to, I want to teach that course again. And there's no good books out there that are just written in straightforward language that explain the story for undergraduates and allow themselves to, to allow them to see themselves in that picture. Because again, it's another case where people see, in the same way people see railroads as inevitable, people see the Constitution as inevitable. And it wasn't for people at the time. It was something that they had to really argue their way through and in, invent their way through. If you look at the, the Constitutional Convention, they are inventing things. It was a, such a tremendous creative act, and uh, we shouldn't treat it as if it was a foregone conclusion. That's going to have to be the last word. We are out of time. Our guest is Andrew Arnold. He is the author of this book, Fueling the Gilded Age, Railroads, Miners, and Disorder in Pennsylvania Coal Country. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.